Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Russian attacks on civilians in Ukraine are being called a war crime. More Western companies are suspending operations in Russia. The Hamilton Center for Civic Inclusion calling for Hamilton police to drop charges against six housing advocates. We recap the NHL's Heritage Classic at Hamilton's Tim Hortons Field. The Ontario government is investing in esports. And how have divorces been impacted by the pandemic? The GMH podcast starts now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. It is very clear that he has made the choice to specifically target civilians now. Canada has joined the largest referral to the International Criminal Court in history and offered assistance to expedite this work. The world will continue to make Putin accountable for his war crimes. That is Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau talking about the war in Ukraine and the war crimes being alleged against Russian President Vladimir Putin. Welcome back to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Rick Samprin with you. Legal experts are agreeing that Russian attacks on civilians in Ukraine do in fact amount to a war crime. Let's ask our next guest. His name is Michel Drapeau, retired colonel and a lawyer practicing military law and an adjunct professor at the University of Ottawa. Mr. Drapeau, good morning. Thanks for joining us on the show. Good morning to you. Does what we are witnessing in Ukraine amount to a war crime, in your opinion? Oh, by a long, long, long shot. A crime against humanity and crime against, uh, war crimes. Uh, I, I mean, uh, war is normally between two belligerent and their armed forces, respectively. And law of wars uh, are designed so that to minimize if not to exclude damage to civilian, unarmed civilians that have nothing to do with the, the conflict itself. And you have to do everything you can to, uh, to make sure that they are kept safe and uh, they're certainly not targeted by your military activities. And that is not only civilian, but, I mean, it, it's the population, it's, it's church, it's hospitals, um, you know, it, it, and the like. Uh, that uh, do do not uh, contribute military targets, and 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 should be everything should be done uh, to protect those and not to uh, inflict damage and certainly casualties. So what we what we see uh, regularly on our television screen is purposefully aiming at uh, school and hospitals and and the like, not protecting civilians where in fact a corridor is trying to be established to ensure that they can leave the conflicted area in safety. I mean, all of that amounts to uh, war crimes where, you know, where, where damages and, and where um, risk is brought to those civilians which have nothing to do with it. They, they should be protected as opposed to being targeted. So, yes, all of those are war crimes. And, and will be considered as such. I know there's a lot of variables at play when you factor NATO into the equation, but is there a line that NATO is prepared to cross sometime soon if these civilian targets continue to be hit? It's hard to say. I mean, I could only speculate, and I, we only have a portion of the information that is available, in fact, to NATO leaders. That includes the prime minister and certainly uh, the leader of the free world, the uh, president of the United States, and they have all sorts of intelligence, and uh, some of it has been made public, obviously, uh, but a lot of others. And we have to trust, and so far, in fact, uh, collectively, they're doing a good job, and 
they they are keeping their card close to, to the chest for good reason. But I think ultimately uh, they will reach a point, if this were to continue as it is, reach a point where NATO in some way, shape or form will have to be involved above and beyond the provision of of, of um, sustenance and and uh, and and, uh, and and weaponries and uh, and the like uh, to uh, uh, to Ukraine. And when will this happen? And how? And what type of reaction and responses will take? It will have to wait and see. Retired Colonel Michel Drapeau is our guest. Uh, Mr. Drapeau is a lawyer practicing military law in Ottawa, also an adjunct professor at the University of Ottawa. And we are talking about the war in Ukraine and war crimes being alleged against Russian President Vladimir Putin. Uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau last week said that uh, Mr. Putin will be brought to justice. What's the likelihood that he will be brought to justice at the International Criminal Court? I think uh, very, very high, not only himself, uh, but he's not acting alone. They are military commanders, and they too uh, will be held to account. Uh, he has a, uh, a a minister, if we can call him that, of external affairs uh, that we occasionally see on television. We see him, in fact, participating recently in, in Turkey, among other things. So those individuals that uh, are high functionaries and high-ranking officers are participants, are, are decision-makers, our enablers, these individuals, will also be held to account before various international tribunals. It's a matter, it's a matter of time. It won't happen overnight. It may take uh, a few years, um, and, I, and I'm talking two, three, four, five years, uh, first of all, before we can collect sufficient evidence, make the case, lay the charges, bring these individuals, which may not necessarily be easy, but it was done in the former Yugoslavia, uh, where, where heads of states were brought to account and so on. So this will take place in the fullness of time, and accountability will be required from those individuals which at the moment, as I said, are not only decision-makers, but are enablers, both on the ground and in, in Moscow, in developing um, you know, policies and orders and so on and so forth, that permits, in fact, their armed forces to conduct these barbarous uh, uh, acts against the civilian population. Last question for retired Colonel Michel Drapeau. Do you see a diplomatic end to the war in Ukraine? I certainly hope so. But all of that, it takes two to tango. And the Russian um, Federation will have to come to the table in good faith and want to um, to br- basically bring a solution to it. So... I mean, NATO from the get-go and for weeks preceding the commencement of hostility have said that they were not only willing but were available and did participate in several diplomatic uh, engagements where, in fact, possibly to try to prevent such an invasion. That did take place, and there was never any positive response made by the Russian Federation. So ultimately, it may be in Russia best interest because they must be feeling by now the impact of all of the sanctions and and one of the good signs that we could see is they're asking China to come to and, and to provide them with support and so on. So all of those sanctions must have an impact upon the Russian people, which in turn will increase the, the amount of protestation that we could see, uh, which could be at the moment rather limited, but it's easy to see a wave 
being formed and so on. So ultimately, Putin, um, I mean, uh, campaign has been anywhere near the type of uh, strategic objective that he laid. So he must be seeing that the longer that he that he pursue this particular engagement, his armed forces are not covering themselves in glory and certainly now not in victories, quite the reverse. So there may be some incentive on his part to come to the table and have some diplomatic solution to cease the, the hostilities. Let's hope that happens. Mr. Drapeau, thank you very much for your time today. You're welcome. Thank that, you. That is retired Colonel Michel Drapeau, lawyer practicing military law and an adjunct professor at the University of Ottawa. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Today I can announce five uh, further individuals to be sanctioned, including Roman Abramovich. These individuals will be prevented from dealings in Canada uh, and uh, their uh, assets will be frozen. That is Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau announcing more sanctions against Russia in the midst of its invasion of Ukraine. And, uh, well, the sanctions go beyond what countries are doing to Ukraine in terms of sanctions because more Western companies are now pulling out of or suspending operations in Russia, although there are some who are still operating in that country. Marvin Ryder is a business professor with the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Good morning, uh, good morning, Marvin, how are you? Good morning, I'm glad to be with you today. Glad to uh, have you with us today. Many Western companies have stopped their operations in Russia, and I guess we shouldn't be surprised by this because the blowback would be huge, especially for an American company like say McDonald's, for example, if it did not close its restaurants there. Right. Well, can I say that usually when we do sanctions, these are applied between countries by governments and and business just sort of operates around those things. But for the first time in my memory, we've actually seen sanctions imposed by companies themselves. And this happens because companies have gotten so big, they cross territories. You know, if you were to take the company Apple Computers, and just make it its own country, it would be larger than half the countries in the world in terms of GDP. So for the first time, we've actually seen companies impose sanctions in addition to countries imposing sanctions. Now, the challenge is that for some companies, this is a fairly easy thing to do. Suppose I'm Netflix or I'm Disney Plus, all I'm going to do on my servers is say, anybody trying to join from this list of IP addresses they're blocked, no longer can they come into it. And they could do it really overnight. But there are other companies where this is a much more challenging thing. To give you a simple example, Marriott Hotels. Now the way they operate, they don't actually own any of the hotels in Russia. They've basically licensed them their name. And so they're trying to figure out legally what they can do. Can they just say to them, okay, you can continue to operate your hotels but you can't use the Marriott name and therefore you can't use the Marriott website. And and they're doing this because, you know, uh, they're also thinking about business after the invasion. They don't want to burn all the bridges that are there and they don't want to set themselves up for large lawsuits. Another classic example, you use the example of McDonald's. When McDonald's went to Russia, they didn't have the kinds of items they needed to operate. So they spent years developing supply chains. By that, I mean, They taught farmers how to grow the right potatoes. They taught bakeries how to make the right buns. They taught vegetable producers how to grow the right kinds of vegetables for them. 
that's a gigantic investment. And if you also look at the value statements of these companies, they often speak about valuing employees. So what McDonald's has done is they've agreed to close their restaurants, but they are going to continue to pay their workers because their values speak to how they value workers. They don't want to just abandon them at this difficult time. There is a flip side of this, and that is not all Western-owned companies have closed up shop in Russia. Burger King, for example, their restaurants, they have hundreds of them in Russia, uh, are still open. And while you can't buy a bottle of Pepsi, uh, PepsiCo is still selling stuff like milk and baby food in Russia. Will, will these companies regret that decision? Is there a physical blowback from shoppers on this side of the world? Yeah, this is that classic example of damned if you do and damned if you don't. And so, again, they're trying to walk a difficult line here. Take Pepsi-Cola. Now, you and I think of it as a a seller of soft drinks of various kinds, but they are so diversified in Russia that they make baby formula. They, as you said, do milk. And they're saying to themselves, well, what is the right humanitarian answer here? Or if I'm a drug company, I'm somebody like a Pfizer. What is the right road to walk here? If I say to the Russian people, I'm not going to sell you my pharmaceutical products, my drugs, my baby food anymore. They're putting other lives at risk, other innocent lives at risk. So is this the right response to somebody like Vladimir Putin? And uh, you're, you're absolutely correct. They may come to regret this, but they're trying to find a way to be, again, true to a greater set of values around humanitarian aid and experiences, and yet at the same time understand that the Russian government is on the wrong side of this conflict. But this, for these people, are very, very tricky. And, and I give them credit because they are trying to, to debate things that we've never thought of before. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Marvin Ryder, business professor with the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University. Uh, the blackout, so to speak, also involves the digital world, which you kind of referenced with Apple, uh, Google, Amazon, Netflix, all suspending operations in Russia the issue is, you know, all of these measures hurt Russian people as opposed to President Vladimir Putin. Right. And so the concept is that, uh, uh, look, you know, you nice Russian people, this is your leader acting on your behalf. Are you happy with what he's doing? Because here's a consequence of what he is doing. In essence, they're trying to make this battle in Ukraine, which for some Russian citizens is thousands of kilometers away. They're trying to make it personal, bring it home and saying this is a consequence of this battle. If you don't like these consequences, then you need to let your leader know that you're unhappy. I'm not, for instance, suggesting that these companies are trying to get the people to overthrow the government, but they are trying to make it personal so that war is a messy business and everyone knows the consequences of it. Again, it's the first time I've seen this done in a big way. If you go back to the Second World War, you didn't have the same level of multinational integration that we have here. So you didn't see companies doing this, but this is a modern age with these multinational companies. It's going to be interesting to see whether this strategy accelerates a time to peace or actually causes people to dig in even more. That's a good point. Marvin, always appreciate the time. Thanks for joining us. Glad to be with you, Rick. Marvin Ryder, business professor, DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. The Hamilton Center for Civic Inclusion is calling for charges to be dropped against six housing advocates who were arrested last year following protests against encampment evictions. Kojo Dampney is our guest. He's the executive director of the Hamilton Center for Civic Inclusion and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, Kojo. 
Good morning. How are you? Good. Yourself? Good. We had a a study that was uh, released not too long ago that revealed at least 19 people without residences died in Hamilton during a six-month period in 2021. What's the status of the encampments in Hamilton right now? Yeah, so there's still an encampment. Uh, We still see that the city of Hamilton is evicting uh, people that... uh, uh, that are houseless in Hamilton, and I think that it's it's still an issue, and uh, it's it's very atrocious to continue to see the city continue to uh, uh, to hand out eviction eviction notices. The uh, city of Hamilton also uh, pledging to undertake a, a homelessness or encampment uh, roundtable to address this crisis. Is that a, a positive move? And do you think anything substantive will come out of that? I think it's a positive move, but at the same time, too, we need immediate action to be taken. Some of the, the Hamilton and Campaign Support Network has provided various immediate actions that the city can take, and they haven't done that uh, to date. So <laughs> they are uh, uh, wasting time, and as you mentioned, there are people that uh, lose their lives by living, uh, living rough, uh, and the city needs to take immediate action as soon as possible. What What is the one thing or maybe the most impactful thing that should be done right now? Well, I think uh, the, the city owns properties. There are certain properties that they, they own. Uh, the Hamilton Company Support Network has talked about expropriating certain lands to provide immediate housing for folks. Uh, they've also talked about expanding uh, wrap around supports that that hasn't been done to the extent uh, at which uh, uh, could be done. So those are some of the immediate things so that people do not have to stay outside. We've seen the frigid weather uh, these last couple of months, and if they don't do anything, uh, uh, it really puts people at risk. But then they are evicting people every day. Uh, we saw a number of evictions that happened last week, and it's 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 just unconscionable that the city of Hamilton will continue to 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 behave in such a manner. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, Kojo Dampney. He's the executive director of the Hamilton Center for Civic Inclusion. We know that six uh, individuals, housing advocates, were arrested last year uh, following uh, protests against encampment evictions. What's the status of those six uh, housing advocates? Yeah, so there's going to be a court date uh, to, uh, on Tuesday, March 15th. And so uh, once there's a court day, we'll see what the decision is. Uh, But prior to that, the Hamilton Center for Civic Inclusion and the Hamilton Anti-Racism Resource Center uh, delegated at the Hamilton Police Board services to ask for them to open an independent inquiry. Uh, We have heard from the, the, the chief that he... Uh, believes the the police officer's actions on those two days could have been better. So if the chief is saying that we definitely need a review to find out exactly what happened outside of the police station and also inside of the police station, how police officers treated uh, the individuals that, that were charged. What is the likelihood of that investigation or that inquiry taking place? 
Well, we we uh, uh, we believe that it should happen. Uh, we'll wait to to see what the decision is uh, tomorrow. But at, from our point of view, this inquiry should happen regardless of uh, of the decision that uh, that takes place on Tuesday. Black leaders in this community have also asked for that inquiry. Um, there has been thousands of people that have sent emails to uh, the, the mayor and to the chief. Uh, so for us, our, our main focus is that this inquiry should happen. And the last thing I'll add is we've seen that police do not have the de-escalation training. We just heard from a, an inquiry in the Queen McDonald uh, death where in the, t- in the 10 recommendations they talk about a lack of de-escalation training for police officers. And that's the same thing we saw uh, on November 24th and 26th where police continue to use excessive force on racialized individuals in this city. Kojo Dantney is our guest, Executive Director, Hamilton Center for Civic Inclusion. We're chatting about the six housing advocates who were arrested last year following protests against encampment evictions here in Hamilton. Is there any sense that those charges may be dropped when that hearing is held tomorrow? Well, it, it, is, it is our hope. Like I said, we've had over a thousand uh, residents write letters to uh, the mayor to the crown's office, and and people have come out to say those charges should be dropped because you had six individuals that were advocating uh, and 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 supporting people that are houseless in this community, and if they are charged, that makes no sense at all. So our hope is that uh, uh, these charges will be will be will be dropped. But at the same time, we have to wait and see what the decision is and what what transpires uh, on Tuesday morning. Kojo, appreciate the time today. Thanks for joining us. No problem. Take care. You too. Kojo Dante is the executive director of the Hamilton Center for Civic Inclusion. We'll be following the story, of course, in CHML News throughout the day tomorrow and bring you the results of that uh, court case. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Hinostroza on it. Scores from an impossible angle. Hinostroza and the Sabres have the lead. Thanks to Sportsnet for the sound. This is Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Hamilton's Tim Hortons Field played host to the NHL's Heritage Classic on Sunday as the Toronto Maple Leafs battled the Buffalo Sabres. And it was the Sabres leaving town with a 5-2 victory. Lots of talk about uh, what's uh, happened on the ice for the Maple Leafs and some stuff that'll happen off the ice with a Maple Leafs player. Let's get into it with Stephen Ellis, web editor with the Hockey News. Stephen, good morning. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you doing, Rick? I'm good. Before we talk about the game on the ice, let's talk about the atmosphere off the ice in and around Tim Hortons Field. I thought it was it was pretty electric. Yeah, that, that was a really fun crowd. It's awesome because obviously for the last couple of years, we haven't been able to see a ton of full crowds in terms of major sporting events in the area and Ontario in general. So it was really cool to see kind of how just how many fans were there, how excited they were and for a Buffalo Sabres home game, it didn't really feel like that. <laughs> As we've come to uh, see over the last uh, little while, at least uh, the last two and a half months or so, the Leafs' goaltending situation has uh, bit them again, and it happened again yesterday. Yep, it's something where Morazic played pretty solid in the first half of the game, and then 
he kind of almost did like what we've seen from like Freddie Anderson in the playoffs where he could play a good game, but then allow a couple stinkers and it all falls apart. And that's what happened. He got a really tough angle goal and then he kicked his own net off, which uh, was a tough one there. Um, so yeah, Mrazic's just not been playing really well. Obviously Campbell wasn't playing well before that. And then the question is, okay, well then what's next? Do they go out and trade for a goalie? And it's something where, yeah, they have to be looking at it. Uh, I don't know if any of their other backup options are, are great right now, but that that's, that was a game where the Leafs could have won that and goaltending kind of threw it away near the end. Yeah, I mean, the NHL trade deadline is a week today. I'm not sure they can do much, especially with their goaltending situation. What, what do you think? It's tough because it's like there's Mark andre Fleury being the best option and one that would make a difference, but there's no other like better option that could really push things. But one goalie that I actually would look to maybe help as a third goalie option would be Craig Anderson, who who was Buffalo's goalie last night, where he's 40 years old, he's having a pretty solid season given the team he's playing for, uh, and, and this would be a chance for him to be, be on a team that might have a playoff run the stand out his career, but that doesn't solve anything. He'd probably only play a one or two games down the stretch and be kind of there as insurance. So if they don't get Flurry, which is going to be pretty expensive, I don't think there's an option out there that would really push this team further. So uh, they, they kind of put themselves in that position where you're, you started the season with a, one goalie who's never been a full-time starter and another goalie who has a history of injuries. And for a team that looked to be a true playoff contender and, and still could be that wasn't the duo to go with. So it, it's something where I don't think there's a perfect solution no matter what because they they kind of just laid their bed of what they started with and it's not an easy way to fix that heading into the deadline. Yeah, I think if you talk to most Leaf fans, they would agree that they'd rather have Frederick Anderson than uh, Jack Campbell or Peter Morazic, at least the way that they have played over the last uh, two months. We're chatting with Stephen Ellis, web editor of the Hockey News. We saw Austin Matthews score his NHL-leading 45th goal yesterday. The record for single-season goals in a Leafs uniform is held by Rick Vive. It happened in 1981-82. He had 54. Now, odds are, unless Matthews goes on an unprecedented slump, he's going to break that. How much higher do you think he's going to go from 54? Well, he's on pace for 60, and I know there's been a lot of talk about a potential suspension for him uh, coming today, and that could slow things down. I wouldn't expect it to be a long suspension, but this is something where like six goals is looking like like a true thing, and it's something where Toronto, kind of like at Edmonton, uh, they at this point they got to score a lot of goals to win these games. That they can't just win these games three nothing. Like they got to score five, six in a lot of these games. Uh, so Matthews, as long as he continues to play as well as he is, it, it's going to be tough. He's playing some of the best hockey we've seen him play, and uh, I, I truly do think 60 goals is a is a realistic target this year. We've only got a minute uh, for this. Uh, Matthews, the reigning Rocket Richard Trophy winner, um, has a disciplinary hearing today for cross-checking Rasmus Dahlin uh, in the old cheekbone yesterday. Uh, I, I'm saying he gets at least a fine, if not one game. I'm kind of leaning towards one-game suspension. Your thoughts? I think one game is definitely kind of the best or the highest it would go to. It's dangerous. You can't throw cross-checks to people's faces. But Darlene kind of just brushed it off as being a hockey incident, and uh, I don't expect it to be more than just one game. Yeah, I agree. Stephen, appreciate the time today. Thanks for joining us. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Stephen Ellis, web editor with the Hockey News, breaking down yesterday's Tim Hortons Field Heritage Classic from the NHL. Wonderful hockey game between the Leafs and Sabres. And we'll do it again tonight, although it's the Bulldogs and the Generals, and it's the outdoor showcase at 7 o'clock at Tim Hortons Field. That one should be a good one as well. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. The Ontario government is investing a million dollars over two years in a scholarship for post-secondary 
secondary students in esports and related programs. Sounds like a neat idea. Stephen Saltz is the co-founder and CEO of Rivalry and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, Stephen. Morning. Thanks for having me. Hey, thanks for coming on. It, it's called the Ontario Esports Scholarship Program. It's going to offer financial assistance to students enrolled in programs related to uh, designing games, developing them, marketing them, uh, as well as innovating uh, th- these game ideas that may m- one day lead to a career in, in similar fields, a career that you're in. How cool is this? It's great. Like I think it's great to see this out of the Ontario government because, you know, historically, um, you know, video games have been, I wouldn't say looked down upon or, or demonized, but it's definitely been seen as something a little more hobbyist and, you know, parents try to keep their kids off of it and all that kind of stuff. And I think um, people are starting to realize the legitimate kind of long-term impact and benefit that comes um, with this field and some of the adjacent fields associated with, with gaming and esports. So it's, um, yeah, it's great to just see kind of a more modern approach. Yeah, the gaming industry, I had no idea. It's the largest segment of Canada's entertainment industry, contributing more than $5.5 billion to the Canadian economy last year. That's that's mega dollars. Um, I know you might not have many details on what will be taught, but what should be taught in this program? What do future e-gamers um, uh, want to learn or, or need to learn? Yeah, I think this program more specifically is just it's just providing kind of funding to students that are engaged in post-secondary programs related to it, right? So, for example, you know, if you're enrolled in like a game design program at one of the schools downtown, you know, this will be a scholarship that you can apply to to kind of help get you through that. So it's more just kind of supporting people in existing programs because there's there's a huge number of like, you know, game development and innovation related programs already in Toronto, even, you know, major schools, um, Sheridan obviously is where this thing was, was launched and kind of announced. So there's obviously programs there. So it's really just providing that support system. And just on that entertainment point, I think people also just don't realize even globally, if you take the aggregate of the movie industry and the TV industry, um, video gaming is larger than both of those combined still. So it's the largest entertainment category by revenue in the world. For those who actually play these games at a higher level, not just in the basement of their parents' home, but you yeah. know they, they play for money, what makes them so great at gaming? Yeah, there's, there, there's this misconception that I think it's almost like maybe easier to become a professional gamer. And what we always tell people is, given how big the gaming industry is and how many people playing, uh, play the game, and also don't forget there's no prerequisites to success. So for example, you know, I'm just under six feet and I'm you know, somewhat athletic but not amazing. No matter how good I am, it's highly unlikely I would have ever made it to the NBA, for example, right? I mean, there's, there's certain like physical characteristics and prerequisites to be good at certain sports, no matter um, how capable you are. The great thing about gaming and esports is there are no prerequisites. You can be you know, big, tall, you know, uh, it doesn't really matter how old you are. Um, you can be anywhere in the world. There's no language barriers, all that kind of stuff. So there's like no limit on it, which means the pool of potential talent to be amazing and competitive at a video game is enormous. It is actually more difficult statistically to make it as a pro gamer in the major titles as a result than it would be to make it to the NHL. And why is that? What sort of skills did they have that the common person, so to speak, doesn't have? Uh, you know, a, a lot of it is like reaction time, ability to think strategically really quickly. You know, they've, they've shown again in a lot of studies that the reaction time of professional gamers is equal to or exceeds Olympians. So, uh, it's just really rapid reaction time, you know, really, really small percentage of people are capable of it. 
iteration and practice. Um, it's kind of everything, frankly, that goes into being a pro in traditional sports. Like these major esports organizations or professional gaming organizations, they have trainers, nutritionists, uh, analysts, uh, statisticians, assistant coaches. Like people don't realize just how big this industry already is and, and how deep the competitive ecosystem is supporting these players. Another minute with Steven Saltz, co-founder and CEO of Rivalry. We're talking about esports in the gaming industry. Is a is a career in gaming as a gamer um, not only lucrative, but is it is it a long one or is it short one like the uh, quote unquote real sports world? Yeah, I think it's it's maybe a little bit longer. Like we've esports have been around long enough that we've kind of seen. You know, the cycle is definitely kind of late teens to you know, probably late 20s, early 30s, at which point, again, yeah, you know, your reaction time and everything does just start to match us so down. So it's probably comparable to, to, to traditional sports, I'd say, for sure. Is there a legendary gamer? There's a few. It depends on the game. Um, you know, some of the bigger ones are definitely from South Korea because we've had kind of the growth and success of competitive gaming there for over 20 years. You know, if you were in Seoul in the, you know, in the late 90s and early 2000s and you turn on the TV, you would find esports or competitive gaming probably you know more likely than traditional sports even back then, and they were filling stadiums up in the early 2000s. So uh, the ecosystems really developed there. So you, you've got a ton out of there, but you've definitely got a you know a huge number coming out of actually Canada, North America, and elsewhere now. And thanks to the Ontario Esports uh, Scholarship Program, it's only going to get bigger and better. Stephen, really appreciate the time today. Right. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Stephen Saltz, co-founder and CEO of Rivalry. A million dollars over the next two years for scholarship to post-secondary students in esports and related programs. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. With courtrooms shut down during the pandemic, many couples seeking a divorce had most of their interactions with lawyers and judges through video conferencing. We've all been Zooming these days, haven't we? But it's also making an already stressful process even more arduous. Here to talk about it is Russell Alexander, family lawyer and author of the new book, The Zoom Divorce. Russell, welcome to Good Morning Hamilton. How are you? Good morning, Rick. How has video conferencing changed the divorce process? It's changed completely. It's, um, keep in mind, the justice system has been a paper-based system for over 200 years, and they had to pivot fairly quickly to a digital system. We've had lots of successes. Uh, we've got a few people getting left behind because of tech issues and some people just don't like change and they don't like uh, learning a new process. Now with anything or pretty much everything these days, technology makes things a little easier. Uh, in saying that, has Zoom or video conferencing made divorce meetings more productive or, or less? I'd say more productive and less stressful for people going through divorce, Rick. Um, we have, you can do it from the privacy and safety of your own home. So you're saving the time that you would ordinarily put in to get ready, travel to court, find parking, go through court security, find your courtroom, go to the courtroom. You'd probably be on a list with 30 or 40, 40 other people and then wait a few hours for your hearing to start. With a Zoom divorce, doing it uh, electronically, your hearing starts at 1030. It usually lasts about an hour. So your six-hour day is now down to about an hour. In saying that, are couples just as emotional during this process, or has the disconnect from the courtroom made it a little more sterile? Great question. I think once people get used to the technology, they're much more relaxed doing it at home. We need to be mindful of uh, incidences of domestic violence and people who cannot access the technology safely. 
So there's certainly pros and cons, but I think overall, once you uh, do a Zoom hearing, you don't want to look back. You don't want to go to court. You don't want to go through the nonsense of, you know, the in-person conflict that sometimes occurs when you meet your spouse at the courthouse. We're chatting about uh, online divorce, for lack of a better term, with Russell Alexander, family lawyer, author of the new book, The Zoom Divorce. Uh, everything is more expensive these days, whether it's food or gas, you name it. Is that true of divorce as well? I think Zoom gives us an opportunity to make the system a lot more efficient, Rick. Prior to the pandemic, the main complaint about the family court was it was, it was took too long and it was too expensive. So the example I gave you, you have a regular in-person hearing might be five or six hours. Now you're down to an hour. That means you're only paying your lawyer for one hour of his or her time. And it's really made the system a lot more efficient. Hopefully it'll stick around once we swing out of the pandemic and we can still have that option moving forward. That was one of my questions. What's the likelihood that this will be the dominant uh, divorce avenue or will people, more people be back in the courtroom? Yeah, I think probably April, we're gonna start to see a slow return to in-person hearings. For administrative hearings, Rick, I think Zoom divorce is a great tool but I think judges for um, trials and issues of, that involves assessing credibility or even settlement, they're going to want to see the parents in court so they can try to work at a resolution. Uh, some steps will require in-person hearings, but for the most part, you, you'll probably see a hybrid evolve where part of it will be by Zoom. And then other days, the judge will want you to come to the courthouse. That makes sense. Russell Alexander is our guest. He's a family lawyer and author of the new book, The Zoom Divorce. So if someone picks up this new book, what are they going to learn? We have uh, frequently asked questions. We have how-to tips, how to work with Zoom, how to work with your divorce lawyer, pitfalls and security issues that you should be concerned about. There's a the court's using a program called Case Lines. It's a program that we electronically file documents with the court rather than using paper documents. So you're going to learn all about Case Lines and how how that how that system works with Zoom, and you're going to you're going to learn about safety and privacy tips as well. In regard, you meant one of the words you mentioned was pitfalls. What is the biggest pitfall, or maybe the most common pitfall that people fall into? Well, the most basic one is they update their software two minutes prior to the hearing. <laughs> the, up, the updates takes five minutes, and now you're 15 minutes late for your court hearing. So number one tip is don't update your software if your court hearing's about to begin. Uh, but some very basic things, Rick, you know, do a test run with your lawyer or your law clerk and make sure the technology's working, your mic's working, your sound's working, that you got a good video screen. And just understanding who is involved in the court process. You're going to have a judge, you're going to have a court registrar, you can have the two lawyers involved, you and your other spouse, there might be some other people there. And just getting familiar with the process so it's not so overwhelming. Last question for family lawyer Russell Alexander. StatsCan recently came out with the divorce rate in Canada and 2020 levels were the lowest since 1973. Obviously the pandemic a big factor. Have you noticed fewer people seeking a divorce? No, the opposite. I did see those stats which were uh, it, it makes sense if you think the court held, the court was closed in 2020 for several months, so they simply couldn't process divorces. So we're going to see a bit of a bottleneck. I don't think the divorce rate is dropping. If anything, my, my guess would be there's some pent-up demand and people are waiting to get out and get back to their lives and move on. 
So the lawyers that I work with and some other firms that I know have seen a you know a 30 to 50 percent spike in cases. So the official divorce rate I don't think reflects what's actually happening. Uh, with respect with couples going through separation and divorce. Well, best of luck with that impending crush, Russell. Really appreciate the time today. Thanks a lot, Rick. Have a great morning. You too. That's Russell Alexander, family lawyer, author of the new book, The Zoom Divorce. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.